Welcome to the Rethink Sales Podcast. I'm Mark Danolo. And I'm Michelle Seeger. So Michelle, we're talking about a fun topic today. We're continuing our conversation about M&A and making the sales organization successful because we know it's not just about doing the deal. It's about getting things to work from a revenue standpoint. That's right. So one of the things we know is that M&A activity was the greatest that it ever was in the history of M&A that we have recorded anyway <laughs> in 2021 and 2022 slowed down just a bit. But now that you've done the acquisition, what next? Right. And that's what we're going to talk to our expert about today. Yep. So uh, Keith Connolly is going to be joining us. Keith, as you said, Michelle, he's an expert. Keith has acquired 24 companies in the past 12 years, which uh, we're going to hear some some great uh, tips, I, I think, ahead of us here. And uh, Keith and I met many, many years ago in a couple of prior lives, so uh, had the privilege of knowing him for some time. So looking forward to the conversation, and uh, we'll, we'll jump right in. Today, we're talking to Keith Conley. I am so excited for this one. So Keith is an M&A expert. He is president and founder of Conley Consulting, where he does advisory consulting for due diligence for M&A in the PE space. Keith, welcome. Hey, thank you. Good to be on. Yeah, we're really excited to have you here today. I know Mark and I have really been looking forward to the conversation. Yep. So, so Keith, as, as we're getting started, uh, let's kind of set the stage because you've had you've had a, a very storied career. So we'd love to hear a little bit about the story in terms of how you got to what you're doing right now. Because you know, when when you look at what, what you're doing, Keith, it's the kind of thing you go, everybody goes, Wow, I'd like to be doing that too. And so I go, <laughs> how do you get there? And and tell us a little bit about uh, about the background story and, and and how you're doing what you're doing. Yeah. Well, you know, I came out of undergrad with a degree in civil engineering and started with Bechtel building nuclear power plants. And I got into the project management side and liked the business. And I wasn't a very good design engineer. So um, <laughs> I went back to grad school, got my MBA, and then got into the management consulting world with the, the big four yep. and spent 15 years there. Um, working with many of the Fortune 20 around the world. And it was just a tremendous experience to apply what you learn in business school and just get exposed to so many different industries and leaders and so forth. And then uh, during the uh, dot-com era, I jumped into uh, a software company running the uh, professional services there. I then did a stint with NCR for uh, eight years, helping them run their outsourcing business. And then I came across a private equity company that was... Uh, working had invested in a company called DTI, which was legal services, outsourcing the illegal services. And uh, they had traditionally been copy and scanning and they're looking for an executive to come in to run their technology business, which at that time was electronic discovery with, uh, with legal uh, issues. Mm -hmm. So I came and we built a business from 60 million to 1.2 billion. Along the way, I became president over all the uh, operating units. And uh, we made 24 acquisitions along the way. We had four transactions with four different private equity firms. So now I found myself, I left a few years ago. And um, when I left, a private equity firm started reaching out to me to uh, provide assistance during the due diligence phase. And they would look at targets in the legal service area or mm -hmm. software area. Mm -hmm. So for the last couple of years, I've worked with about 16 private equity firms, helping them assess the risk uh, speaking to the target management team, 
uh, they're, they're looking to buy, helping them with valuations and an overall assessment of should they do this deal or not. And it's been a lot of fun. You know, it's one thing when you're running a company and you're owned by a private equity company, but it's a lot more enjoyable to be working for a private equity company owning the company. Right, so, right. It's a lot more fun. It's much, much better. It is a lot more fun. So that's, that's what I've been doing for the last uh, two years and have enjoyed it uh, tremendously. So, so one thing caught my ear there, a lot of things caught my ear, but one in particular, I see you said a DTI, you went from 60 million, uh, is that right, to 1.2 uh, billion, right? Yeah. So incredible. that's incredible. And, and then you go, well, how do you do that? Well, you have a lot, you had a lot, a lot of acquisitions there. Um, yes. How do you, how much of that was acquisition growth? How much of that was organic? Was that part of the plan to get to that level through acquisitions kind of what, what, what did it look like in terms of how you made such a huge jump? Yeah, well, the private equity companies that invested in us over that 12-year period uh, would assist us primarily, you know, besides strategic planning would be investments and roll-ups. So uh, it was an industry that uh, was very accretive. If you could buy companies at five or six times uh, EBITDA, so that was always the plan to have uh, an acquisition strategy. In fact, you know, we would acquire, we got the process down so good that we would acquire, then integrate quickly to get the synergies. Mm -hmm. And one of the challenges that private equity companies would have when they would evaluate us would be to try to tease out what was organic versus inorganic. Because mm -hmm. when you integrate and you get the financials going, it's very difficult to measure organic. So originally, we're, we were growing about 20% top-line organic, but after a while, it becomes muddy, and it's very difficult to measure the, uh, the true organic nature, uh, given you're trying to integrate the companies quickly to capture those synergies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow, tremendous feat. Well, yeah. so, so when you look at the market today, Michelle, you talked about you know, the, the amount of uh, M&A activity happening out there, which is unprecedented. As where we sit right now, the way the economy is going, the market, et cetera, what's your general assessment of what the M&A market looks like right now, say from the perspective of a private equity buyer or even the perspective of a company that's growing through acquisition, you know, acquiring other companies? Well, from a private equity perspective, they're not having difficulty raising funds. I mean, we're talking about multi-billion dollar funds. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, historically, the returns have been very, very healthy uh, when you invest in private equity. So uh, raising the capitals is not the problem. The challenge is trying to find businesses that are valued appropriately to invest in. Because uh, the valuations today on these corporations, at least in technology, are at an all-time high. I mean, for example, software companies in the legal services industry are going for 25 times EBITDA, service companies 12 or 13 times EBITDA. So um, it's been difficult uh, to really try to get uh, some deals done due to the valuation. So, you know, they have a lot of money and, um, you know, having the money sit idle isn't helping their shareholders any. Right. So uh, they're taking more risk right now to deploy their money. Um, looking at alternative things like dentist uh, roll-ups and um, veterinarians and um, dermatologists. They're diversifying even more now to find areas to invest in. 
from an enterprise perspective, it's an, a great time to sell. And again, my experience has been more around the technology, but right now, you know, it's an all-time high uh, to sell your company. And you know, you never know about the uh, the certainty of the markets three, four, five years out when the exit would occur after you get bought. So, it's a great time if you're looking or interested in, in selling your company, just because of the valuations that you can achieve right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so it sounds like a couple things are happening. One is there's the challenge of you're saying take risk, which I interpret as the, the PEs are maybe having to pay more than they want to pay. And then there's the yes. diversification. Okay, we're going to look in new areas, new places that we haven't looked at uh, previously. Exactly. Well, yeah. well, good summary there. So what would you say would be one of the top two or three reasons why the valuations are so high right now? Well, um, at least in technology, you have a really good track record of growth. Mm -hmm. Although COVID uh, was episodic in nature, if you just take out the up and down of that, you have a, a lot of strong, predictable growth mm -hmm. and the margins have improved over the years. So you have predictability and today you, you have more reoccurring revenue. You know, a lot of the companies have really focused their business model on that versus transactions. Mm -hmm. So their businesses are stickier Thus, uh, that's more attractive to a private equity company. Okay, so that's going to lead us into, you know, impact to the sales organization. Now, as you know, Keith, what we do is uh, sales effectiveness work here at Sales Globe, and we focus on, for M&A, the integration of the sales organization. So from your perspective, in the overall picture and view of a merger or acquisition, how important and what how important is the role of the sales organization to the success of MA work? Well, it's certainly critical. I mean, I would summarize there's three areas you have to get right for the uh, for acquisition to be successful. Number one would be you got to maintain the revenue of the targeted company, right? If that revenue erodes, your whole business case go sideways and all the synergy you take out are, are easily evaporated. So at a minimum, you need to maintain the revenue. The second is you got to maintain your top talent. And I've always focused on sales and project management being your top talent. So you put together a plan to secure that because I recall in one acquisition, we lost uh, the top five salespeople that were the hunters on the first week after the acquisition that, you know, dramatically didn't have a huge impact near term because we were able to surround those clients and there was some overlap. But in the medium term, we felt the impact because there's not a lot of hunters out there, truly. And then the third would be just to um, at least meet your synergies, if not exceed your synergies, right? But, you know, when you look at synergies and overlaps, you know, I have always been very careful about uh, taking a lot of or planned synergies in the sales team. I mean, there's a lot of consternation going on, uh, you know, comp plans, roles, and so forth, territory planning. And it's just not an area that it's worth trying to get the, the synergies early on in the sales, at least for people touching the client, right? Anyone touching the client, you really don't want to touch those people 
uh, you know, for a while, keep them in place, maintain client continuity, right? You may have overlap with some sales leaders or inside sales and so forth. But the third thing is anything that you know, any salesperson touching your client, tread very careful. And I just think that's not the place to count on synergies short term. I mean, they'll flush themselves out, the territory planning, the change in comp plans eventually, and you'll have some people, you know, leave voluntary or involuntary. But I would be, I've always been very judicious and not trying to have a lot of synergies in the sales area the first year. That is such really great advice. So you you basically you said three things, which are the first two much easier said than done. The third, you can deal with some other pressures like from the board, right? When you start talking about those synergies. But the first thing you said was maintaining the revenue of the targeted company. So you bought that company for a reason. You want to make sure none of that particular revenue erodes or goes to the competitor or whatever happens there. Second thing you said was making sure that you keep your top talent. And then thirdly, making sure that you're able to keep your synergies and exceed them, but leave the sales organization alone as far as those synergy expectations, at least in the early days or for customer-facing roles. Now, I want to follow that up with a question. So we, we did a recent survey that had over 600 companies um, that, that responded, and half of them had been involved in an acquisition over the last 12 months. And we asked them what were the biggest challenges that they had. And we had like seven or eight, but the top three were, and I want to hear your, um, I want to hear your feedback. The one was uh, integrating the sales organization, integrating the two teams. The other was getting alignment across an overall go-to-market plan, which that sounds like so big, right? Um, another thing was, the role definition. So just making sure that um, your teams have alignment on the roles and how they're defined. I'll give you a simple example of that because that was a, a big one for, for our clients. Inside sales at company A may be doing um, and behaving very differently than company B. One could be entry level, um, a way to get into field sales. Another might be a profession of, it, of its own. Um, and then finally, cross-selling. And I'm sorry, there is one more, incentive comp. Uh, yeah, cross-selling is a, an elusive one. Uh, yeah. I've always found that to be the most difficult. Every time we did a transaction with a different PE company, you know, we had five different business units and they would say, oh boy, if we could just cross-sell more, cross-sell more. Yeah. Boy, we spent a lot of energy on it. We measured it, we compensated it. But I tell you, that's, that's probably the most difficult one. The, the three that come to mind to me, and I, those all resonate, right? They're all real issues, but you know, number one is the comp plans, right? You know, they're likely to be very different and comp plans speak a lot about culture of the organization, right? We bought one company and their comp plan was such that no salesperson could make more than their CEO. And we always viewed it as we, if we have a salesperson that makes more than their CEO, you know, assuming they, that the right incentives are in place, that's awesome, right? Mm -hmm. So the comp plan is, is an area that you need to tread, um, you don't need to rush that one, right? There's a lot of complexity there, you know, that can demotivate the sales team, right? And we would typically, um, you have to look at your cost of sales, but we 
we'd be very intentional on, on the comp plans, uh, but not rush it. The second area is the territory uh, planning realignment. Uh, again, that is not an area to rush, right? You're gonna have some obvious, most likely overlap in some accounts and so forth, right? Maybe the same decision maker or not, but there's just a lot of an anxiety around territory planning. And I think um, we've always treaded lightly on that yeah. and intentionally and just communicate a lot, right? And the third is what you talked about is the alignment of the roles. Um, you know, an account manager, one company might be very reactive and an account manager in our company was a, a quota based farmer that drove growth year over year 20%. So uh, in the role definition, especially in a merger, uh, it can cause a lot of consternation that really has to be thought out well. So those are the three that I always think through. Even though yeah. I'm the president of the company, I was involved heavily in all those decisions um, as we acquired companies, just knowing uh, if, if you weren't, if those weren't addressed correctly and appropriately, um, you're going to have some problems, you know, involuntary uh, attrition. You know, on the, uh, the point on cross-selling, uh, Keith, I could see you were thinking a bit about that and you said you've tried it so many times. I'm wondering what is it that you found that makes cross-selling so challenging? Because it is kind of the obvious big benefit. It's like, well, we can just cross-sell, we're going to be able to get all these these extra benefits. But what are the what are the challenge points that you see with that? I you know, I think it has a lot to do with turf. Uh-huh. Right. Mm. So for example, a sales rep being very successful right? Making maybe a million dollars a year, right? And you say, hey, we bought this company. There's other services we can pull in. Here's the compensation plan. And they're like, well, I don't know if those guys can deliver that. Why would I want to risk my million dollars and bring in a service line that, you know, I don't know how good the service is and so forth. So it's the risk that many in, in territory um, turf that I found at the end of the day, is the hardest thing to break down. You think compensation and comp plans for cross-selling in itself, uh, and we put some really attractive compensation plans together for cross-selling, would be enough for the inertia, but it, it wasn't, right? Yeah. And if I had to do it all over again, we never had a chief revenue officer. And when you have different lines of businesses, um, it really goes up to the president and you become the chief revenue officer, right? So I was driving a comp plan discussion <laughs> across five different sales executives and you know trying to get them to work together. But having a chief revenue officer, I mean, you gotta be a certain size, but that you know their goal is to cross sell, to, to line things across all the different business units. That's something we never had uh, at Epic. And if I had to do it all over again, I would put that in place because that, that could have been a big driver of bringing things together and breaking down some of these barriers. Hmm. So it's, so when you talk about behavioral motivators, you, you know, you think the comp plan is going to motivate people to do certain things, but the bigger motivator is actually the avoidance of risk. If people are at a certain compensation hmm. level, exactly. I'm, I'm more motivated to not mess things up than I am to try to make a few extra dollars possibly hmm. and put it at risk. Right. At the end of the day, right? Cause I would go out in these sales calls and I bring, and I try to say, why is this, right? Because we've married, we went from like 4% cross-selling to 7%, but uh, 
it sounds like a big percent increase, but it, it's around here in the big scheme of things. Yeah. And that, that was what I found out personally. And, um, um, you know, even in consulting, you know, we did a lot of cross, you know, when I was a manager consulting in, in sales and uh, it's easy to lay out the plans, but it's just really one of the most difficult things to execute in a company. All right. So I want to ask uh, for maybe if you have anything in your head for any examples, kind of the blood and gut stories, like <laughs> anything that's happened, you go, man, this is like something I, I, I saw that I, it was a pitfall I would avoid at all costs or something to watch out for. And you don't have to name names or anything, Keith, but I'm, I'm just kind of interested because you've seen a lot of action. Like what are some of the bigger mistakes that you've seen happen? Well, in smaller acquisitions, Right. And when you're acquiring a company, you know, you're imposing your vision, mission, values, existing comp plans, right? Um, processes and so forth. Um, and that, you know, when you're acquiring a company, imposing that, it's uh, less risky, in my opinion. But um, we've run into issues, as I mentioned before. You know, when you get good at integration, uh, you have speed and velocity, you integrate quickly. And uh, with smaller companies, we had earnouts. So someone that uh, ran a company, right? We would pay them out one third of the valuation next year, a third, the next year's third to keep the business going and their right. head in the game. Yeah. Right? And when you integrate a company quickly, you start losing that P&L focus. And so they had a P&L before and all of a sudden, right? You bought them to integrate and to sell those services or offerings throughout your whole company. So, you know, we got into a lot of legal issues with some of the uh, owners that we bought businesses from because we couldn't measure that earnout um, as, as effectively. And you get into negotiation, what that would look like and so forth. We gave them the benefit of the doubt, but that is just that's one of the things about earnouts is if, you, if you're going to keep them separate and measure them as separate P&L, you're not going to get the benefit as much, but that's easier. But if you integrate these companies, you just have to watch out on the earnout front because we have had um, a few litigation issues that come about. So, so basically, the playing field or the game changes a bit. So, at the beginning, when you're doing the acquisition, it's like, here's what we want you to do. That's all really clear because we have control over yeah. it. We can handle those things. We've done it before, and then everything starts to come together, and the game changes, and then it gets harder to measure. Yeah, and measure that specific business that you caught because you're integrating and you're leveraging those resources across other areas because of their expertise and so forth. It's good overall for the business, but if, if, you're, if you are being acquired and you're expecting this payout every you know, a third every year, it can be, uh, can be complicated. So that's one of the risks. And any other watch outs for, for people uh, that kind of things that you've learned through experience? You know, the sales area, um, what I've learned is like there is a role for the executives when it comes to sales during these acquisitions. Right. Um, and a, an executive needs to be proactive, um, engaging. Like I would be on the calls of the top clients of the company they were acquiring to speak through it and still do diligence. You know, we're, we're asking questions about, you know, the, we're letting them know we're buying this company, and but then, then we're finding out a little bit more about um, you know their business and how much revenue we might get over next year or so forth. But you know, it's engagement 
the executives, you know, going out there, going on a, a call with your sales team. Um, I would call my top salespeople every month, right? And I would send out notes to people that had, you know, exceeded their quota for the month, right? But just, I think, really getting in touch with that, that company you just acquired, participating in and learning firsthand at the beginning what the challenges are, because you have the resources to, to, to address some of these systemic issues. And if you always rely upon two or three layers below in a major acquisition, it might be a missed opportunity. So you don't want to be micromanaging, but at, at the beginning, you can you know, communicate your values, your mission with these people, you're out in the sales call, you're meeting clients, right, and learning about the clients. And then you're hearing the salespeople talk and understand what challenges they have. And you can kind of bring that back, look for the systemic issues and drive some change on behalf of there to help uh, help those sales reps and just overall help them become better um, as they come into the country company. Yeah, yeah, staying close to the action. You know, Keith, I think that's probably one of the best pieces of advice that we could give a sales leader. I'll tell you from our own experience, so many things that we see, if a leader doesn't have all the answers, sometimes they say nothing. And then all of a sudden they're being flooded with churn that they didn't want from the top sales people from the, the company that they're acquiring. You know, water cooler talk, it just happens if you're not leading the conversation. Um, and that's one of the first things that we tell, um, that we talk to sales leaders about is just get out there regardless of what you, you know, what the message is. They just want to hear something from you and understand like what's ahead. What other advice would you give um, sales leaders? And then I'm, I'm going to follow up some about cross-sell because it's a big pain point. What other advice would you give a sales leader that, you know, now here they are, right? They've, they've been given the charge of you got a new company that's coming in and here are the expectations from the board. You didn't have any say on what that was going to look like or the quotas or anything. Um, what advice would you give the sales leader in, as he or she is? taking on that new role? Well, you know, one is um, kind of role modeling, not becoming internally focused, right? And all this stuff is going on and people are worried about what they have a job and so forth. You know, role modeling your discussions about the client first is extremely important because as you mentioned the politics and so forth, um, if the sales leader isn't role modeling that, a lot of stuff can internally, you start taking the eye off the ball. The second is, you know, they're going to participate, but don't rush the comp plan and the territory planning, right? And then the third is just overall communication. Like we would have our sales lead, we'd give them extra money to physically get the sales reps together, right? Monthly basis initially, and then quarterly basis, and then it went back to normal. And that's an investment, you know, if sales reps are coming flying in from all over the place. But that's just an opportunity to really communicate where you are, what's going on, get a lot of Q&A, build the team stuff. So I would say make that an investment uh, mm -hmm. in getting your teams physically together to get to know each other. I remember one global sales leader we, we were doing um, an acquisition for the integration of the sales organization. And he went, I mean, it was a global company, multi-billion dollar. And he went into all the different locations 
And he would wear a costume. It was really kind of funny. He dressed up as Big Bird for one. And nobody knew who was coming in. And it was their their CRO. And he would walk in. And we would hear, uh, you know, about this after. But it really broke the ice. And, you know, let them know a little bit about this person and, and his individual style. But, you know, I'm not saying everybody has to wear a costume. But making that personal connection and getting out there, I, I would agree with you, is really key. Yeah. And I also saw this one sales rep when he pulled this meeting together, he brought in one of their top clients and the client um, spoke about what it's like to be a client mm-hmm. of Epic mm-hmm. and oh, what they like, what you, their challenges are, like these multi-touch points. Sometimes they get a little confused, solution architect or sales rep, right? It was really interesting. It's just it was a great idea and you have to have a certain level of client uh, relationship to have someone come in and be that honest. But um, I wish we had filmed that if we could, but that's just an example of a, a really good leadership move to again, yeah. try to make things client centric and client focused and not get the internal consternation, um, you know, swimming. Yep. So I want to bring you back to cross up for a minute. If I, if I could, mm-hmm. Um, because we do find it's one of the biggest challenges. And you know what? You're right. What we see day in and day out is we'll go in and we find out that the cross-sell synergies or the cross-sell expectations aren't there. And we can tell you for a fact, we know over 90% of companies that acquire another one, 90% of the cross-sell expectations do not occur. We do know that in 90% of the cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you already discussed some of the, the mistakes that we've seen is, oh, they'll spiff it to death. We had one that was, they were even giving a car. I mean, I, we have seen so much for just so many in a month, right? I'm sure you have seen a lot more than we have. So we did a Porsche. We leased a Porsche ah, see that? for two years. Um, <laughs> brought him down to Atlanta to drive in the Porsche track. <laughs> oh my God. So yeah. it doesn't, matter right so you know and I, and I I agree with you that a lot oh and then I, I had another one this would be more like a stick but they didn't expect it to be a stick so they want to cross sell and they had legacy products but the solution was we're going to create a threshold to pay for everything so you won't get upside or any decent pay on your core products until you hit a certain level of expectation on cross sell well, guess what? Their top performers started, they were blowing it out of the water with their, you know, traditional products and services and weren't earning anything. And they started to leave. That was a panicked call that we right. got that right. one time. So when you think about that, and we realize the importance that uh, salespeople have with their client, their relationships, their revenue, right? What w- advice would you give sales leaders on first steps to take when they're thinking about cross-sell? Well, I think the more comfortable a sales rep is with the service offerings that they're supposed to cross-sell and the people associated with those services, Hmm. the better off they are, right? Versus some marketing stick with some PowerPoints and so forth. I mean, have them understand if their solution architecture, pre-sales people in there, you know, get them working with the sales reps and educating them on this and getting comfortable with the solution. So their perceived initial risk of what this could do to my existing revenue 
can be reduced. Right? That I, mm -hmm. I found that to be fairly effective, not for all, but for many. You know, that education of those other services that they want them to pull through. Because I think as senior executives, you kind of, I mean, you see all these services and you kind of think, why are they doing this? And then you go out and you speak to the rep and they don't really understand the service that well. Mm -hmm. And that's what contributes to why they feel there's risk there. So that education, ongoing education, yeah. not an event, but the ongoing education of these services and case studies that you can share and the wins that occur. Hey, you know, Sally just sold this. And let's talk about how she did it and who uh, I think is very positive and can help the cause. Yeah. You know, to that point, Keith, uh, Michelle, there was a recent situation where it was a client. They were, there was, it was an acquisition they had made. They were trying to get cross sell to happen. Mm -hmm. And the core reps perceived that bringing in this other organization actually slowed down the sales process yeah. and made it more complicated when in fact it, it could accelerate it and it could make retention better but yeah. it was just a misperception and, and communications was a big issue because they had, they had unfortunately turnover in the sales organization. They had new people. So they were, they weren't getting the same messaging as well. And that's one of the biggest challenges as you get larger. I mean, the things about when you're small, you're nimble, right? You can make decisions quickly, but the larger you get, there's more layers of communication. Mm -hmm. There's more protocols. If you're public, there's more things. And that's the most difficult thing is, how do you not lose what made you so successful, especially as a salesperson can get something approved like this versus having to go through your CFO and committee and it takes you, you know, days, if not a week to get approval. Yeah. That, that has been probably one of the things I would always focus on and look for client feedback on this area as well. But that's one of the biggest challenges. How do you stay nibble, right? balance the uh, ability to be nimble versus the, the process that you have to have in place or processes when you get larger. And how do you balance those two is, is a challenge. Yep. And salespeople are at the end of that, right? It's, yeah. So, so Keith, we use the word uh, or the words merger and acquisition, M&A, and we just kind of, you know, use them together. But there's a big difference between doing an acquisition and doing a merger. Which, which of those do you think is the better approach? Yes, there, you know, there's different risks associated with those two models. Um, if you're doing a merger, which means that you're creating a new company, I mean, like SunTrust and BB&T, right? right? Very different cultures, BB&T, very decentralized, you know, local cities, um, SunTrust or Regions Bank, it's one of those two, um, much more hierarchical, corporate, very different cultures. And they created Truist as a new company. Uh, and we did the same thing when DTI bought Epic and we merged together. So you're creating a new vision, mission, set of values. Then you have to determine what processes in the company that you use. Right. The hiring processes, you know, we've, it's easy to say you take best practices, but then you have an integrated leadership team and who's determining what's best practice. Well, the best practice is the one I'm used to. And the other person says, well, no, no, that's my process. And yeah. so conceptually take the best practice is great, but politically, right. And people are kind of stuck <laughs> in the ways um, and you have to rebrand yourself and so forth. So I have found, I went through that. Um, we're at DTI, we bought a public company, brought them private. 
and chose to merge. And we had a blended leadership team and we tried to blend things as much as we could. Um, but it, that when you do that, one, it takes a lot longer. Two, your attrition early on will likely be less, but in the long term, it's about the same. Mm. And if you acquire and impose your processes, vision, missions, and values, um, the um, voluntary attrition will be a little bit greater, but it's faster and it's less risk, right? Mm. So I, I think mm. if you look at other case studies and you know the Bell South, at and and so forth, when you have these mergers, it, it is harder and it's riskier. So if you have a choice, my experience be one or the other, you know, buys the company and not that you can't tweak things, but you try to apply the existing vision, mission values and don't work all that. And, you know, just have the other company adopt that and move on, right? And you can do it with some velocity there and you can get back to focusing on clients a lot quicker than having your executive leadership team in offsite meetings, thinking through what the mission is and what your new values are. Mm -hmm. That um, merger can be very uh, distracting to the senior leadership team you know, and take you away from being focused on clients. So that's been my experience. There's certainly cases where it makes sense, but all things being equal, um, the risk is a lot less when you acquire a company. I would think it's a big challenge with the client as well, right? So if you've got um, that merger situation, I think there's a lot more question as to who's serving me now and how are things changing as opposed to when you've got that acquisition, you've still got messaging for the, the clients of the, of the company that you acquired. However, I would think it's a little easier, particularly with bigger companies, because you know what they stand for, their mission vision. Yeah, because when you're doing the merger, it's two fairly good-sized companies coming together. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. you know, I was on the you know calls with cl the clients of both companies ahead of time announcing these changes. And, you know, you always say that, hey, we're not going to change your account manager and we're going to keep the people that have been supporting you in place. And they go, well you have two salespeople that have been supporting my company now. Like, how are you going to deal with that? Yeah. So um, there are greater complexities there um, when you do that, for sure. So let's talk a little bit about culture. We can, because you did touch upon that. And I think it's a really important one that, that came up actually this year in our survey, Mark, as one of the top challenges. It's interesting because we run this uh, question around M&A, we run it year over year, and culture came out as even more important, this go around um, as being a top concern. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, you've got two companies that, well, first of all, when you acquire a company, let's, let's use that example, um, does the culture even come into play as part of due diligence? And I think I probably know the answer to that. And then when you've acquired that company and you've got two fairly different cultures, like how do you really, what's the most successful way to bring them into one? 
Yeah. I mean, I remember as a management consultant, we talked about culture mm -hmm. and uh, how important it was. But when you run companies and you buy companies, you realize it's just not a saying. It is the glue. And if you don't address it, uh, the, the probability of success of that acquisition is going to go down very low. Um, because, you know, what is culture? You know, it's the beliefs and the values that your top leaders exhibit. Not what they say, but what they exhibit, how they walk the talk. Mm. And, you know, when you're buying another company, their culture likely is different, but if it's very different, then you know that the integration you know, from a change management perspective is going to have to be much more significant if you don't want a lot of voluntary turnover. Now, sometimes you may want it, you know, capture additional synergies and you're buying them for their software or something. But in general, understanding the culture and, and how you um, integrate the companies is really, really important. Um, if you're buying a company and they're smaller than you are, then you oppose your culture, right? That's easier, right? Here are our values. This is how we operate. This is our norms. This is how our leaders behave. And, you know, you'll find out fairly quickly who's on board and who's not. And the ones who are not on board, you know, you need to get rid of because they'll become cancers in your organization, right? So you got to do that fairly quickly early on um, to help stabilize it from a culture perspective. Right, but but it is extremely important. And on the due diligence perspective, you know, as you're talking to the target management team and you know how they do business, um, you get a good feel for what you're dealing with and what the challenges are going to be. So you just have to be very very intentional and try to bring people along and explain your culture and this is who we are and this is how we operate and this is who we are. Right. And yeah. if this isn't for you, understand this is this is our core values. This is how we operate. We want to bring you on here. But if this isn't the right place for you and so forth, understood, we'll help you with an exit. And that's typically how we uh, we've handled that. But, yeah, if you don't get the culture correct, you're going to um, have a really difficult time. You know, Keith, one of the I I, I don't want to miss what you said there, because I think that's really important. And what you said was very quickly having the company understand that's being acquired, what your culture is, your beliefs, your vision. What we have found is that a lot of companies will say, you know, they'll talk to us and say, okay, we're just not going to go there. We're going to leave them alone for now. Just let them run as is and, you know, just leave it be and let things settle down. And, you know, we're called and, and, you know, I'm speaking about clients that we've talked to or colleagues out there and they're they're failing those acquisitions and you know they they believe they're doing the right thing by just letting things go but you know my belief has always been i'd like to it sounds like your belief but i'd like to hear that is it doesn't matter what the message is as long as the message is clear i think people just want to understand what's ahead um and what your beliefs are and and we believe, I think Mark believes this too, I think you do, that the leaders that aren't clear are the ones that will really lose out in the end, you know, regardless of your position during M&A or anything else. Yeah, I mean, I think it's that clarity of leadership, yeah. as you said, Keith, which is really the, the tricky part. It's what they demonstrate. It's what they yeah. do, right? Yep. And, and 
Yeah, I think you're right, Michelle. People are looking for clarity. I mean, we've just been through this entire change over the past couple of years and people are looking for clarity we went through from a change. their That's leaders, true. right? And so, yeah, so MA, I think same thing, clarity. But Keith will let you comment on it because we're kind of like sort of answering the question. Well, you know, we did 24 acquisitions, so we got good at acquisitions. Yeah. yeah. We got this process in place where myself or someone on my executive team would, would fly out on the day of close, right? The day one, right? And meet with the entire company and have videos and so forth. And we would lay out you know, why we bought them, how we're going to operate together, uh, what our values are, how, you, know, w- you know, how we view our employees. We would say there's some redundancy, right? And you'll know by the end of today whether you have a job or not. Right, because we just learned pulling off the bandaid is—it's just a better yeah. process. And you know, everyone would know by the end of the day, right? We would talk about the name change, right? In ninety days, everything's going to be, you know, th- this name, and just lay it all out. And then we'd have uh, all hands calls every week, and then we'd have uh, Q and As going out every other day, right, to the company, because all these questions coming up about policies and this and that. Um, so we got really good, good at that. And, but it was the engagement early on by the senior executive team uh, in that company, small or large, we would treat yeah. it the same way. And, um, and then you just had to walk the talk. Yeah, so, so you're really talking about a process, a campaign, it's a method that you follow. It's, yeah. it's quick, it's clear yeah and you yeah. Know, we're, we're, we're big proponents of that idea of, of the campaign or the process and uh, and i'm unfortunately a big uh advocate of ripping the band-aid off i do it all the time around <laughs> here but i'm like you i think you just got to be straight up you know yeah. and and truthful and and um let people know kind of what's ahead and i i i would agree with you on that i i really appreciate that advice about dealing with those things early on because we see too many companies set back. And what they'll tell us is they've gone through multiple acquisitions, very similar to what you're saying about the 24 companies, some of them small, and they've let them operate, you know, as they have been and haven't integrated them. And then suddenly they're having issues with scale. Suddenly they're not getting efficiency. Suddenly, you know, they're not getting the revenue that they had expected. And things go south, then they want to integrate everything and they're dealing with a much larger cultural and change management issue because some of these companies have operated fairly independently for a a long time. Yeah, our philosophy is always integrate, right? Be careful on the sales side, but that's just one aspect, but the processes and so forth, integrate, organizationally integrate, right? I got to agree with you on that one. Okay. Well, I've agreed with you on everything. So, um, okay, let's talk about this. I'm going to flip it around because I keep talking about sales. So let's just talk about, you know, when you're deciding to buy a company, you just said there's a lot of money out there. PE firms are looking into alternative industries and businesses like the dentistry. And you're right. We're seeing this ourselves. We're getting calls on veterinarians and all this other stuff where where there's a lot of M&A going on that wasn't, you know, just a couple of years ago. So they're being creative about that. But, you know, what are some of the key things that you would say are, are most important to think about 
when you know you're you're acquiring another company. Now I know that some of these PE firms they all know what they're doing, right? But even sales leaders, I think, would be interested to know when do you just say no, like run, Forest, run. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, like when do you just do that? Well, from a sales perspective, which is a very important due diligence, right? Mm-hmm. The first thing yeah. I always look at is, do we have any client concentration mm-hmm. in this business is number one, because if there is, that exponentially increases the risk, right? If you have one client that's 50% of your business and they right. Right. walk away. So that's number one. The other is, and I've learned this over time is, truly understand what's in the booking and the backlog of these businesses. We bought a business and uh, we, you know, as you're more in the due diligence, you're learning more and more and getting peeling the onion. And we realized internationally they were at a peak. And when I did this call with the, their, their top client in, in Germany, right? I learned that the, 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 the big concentration client over there was gonna start winding down. But the forecast didn't reflect that, right? So um, understanding really what's baked in and how much risk there is, we would look at clients' run rates, you know, historical, and just see and, and try to understand, you know, and come up with our own independent forecast versus what they gave us since oftentimes it's a hockey stick. And then um, to the extent where there's account overlap, you know, just have a plan of how you plan to address that, right? Because it's pretty obvious you have the client list and so forth and don't wait until after you announced it to try to figure it out. Develop, doesn't mean you have to execute against them, but develop the plan early on. If you have a lot of overlap of sales reps, mm. you know, in a territory or even worse in a client, right? You've done this enough, there's a process to address that start the planning process before the acquisition actually occurs, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, that will help reduce the, the risk as well. You know, and, I, and I've heard you say, Keith, in a separate conversation, don't be afraid to walk away. You know, don't get so caught up in the momentum because I think when you're doing a deal, you know, the, the, uh, the, mo- the momentum is that you want to make it happen, right? Mm-hmm. So don't, I think you said something like, don't be afraid to walk away at the last minute or, or something to that effect. Well, what happens is, especially larger deals, right? You're spending millions of dollars in legal fees. Yeah. Right. And investment advisors, uh, investment bankers, uh, right. consultants, right, that are being brought in through the private equity companies. And um, there's a lot of sunk cost. And I recall mm-hmm. one acquisition where, when we really understood the financials at the very, very end, right before we signed the contract and did the deal, you know, we kind of wanted to back out. And, um, you know, the private equity company who was selling, who was helping us buy this, you know, said, listen, we spent so much money on this, right? Let's just get it over the goal line now and see if we can make it, you know, make it happen. And, um, you know, that was a good example. That was a lesson learned for us as a leadership team, because in hindsight, we should not have done the deal, right? Because you're learning and learning and learning all the way up until you sign that paper. So I guess the learning fear is it's never too late to say no. Right. Mm. Uh, and don't, those are some costs. That, you know, that's how you have to treat those. Just because you've made millions of dollars of, of legal spend, investment banking fees and so forth, that shouldn't be a determination whether you go forward or not. 
right? right. You, you should be able to say no at, at any point, even at the very, very end. Um, and that's kind of a lesson learned there. So that's that's a great piece of advice. Uh, I mean, that's that's one of the core lessons I remember yeah. from business school uh, was, you know, don't make decisions based on a sunk cost. And for some reason, that kept coming back and back over the years. Yeah. So, Keith, last question. Um, if you had, you know, just a few seconds with an executive and they were saying, hey, you know, Keith, we're looking at, you know, we're, we're growing through acquisition. That's our, our plan. What one piece of advice would you give them if you only had a few seconds to tell them something that might might help them? You know, I would tell them to get out and meet the new clients and to get out and go on sales calls with sales reps. Now, I'm not saying the sales manager, maybe he's in the meeting or she's in the meeting, but to really engage with your clients, the, the, your new clients, mm -hmm. and with your sales reps, the people that are touching your clients. Mm -hmm. That's what I would say. And it's not an event, it's an ongoing process. And as I mentioned, I would call my top sales reps every month. But just to really get out there and understand firsthand what the challenges are that this new sales team is facing. And as an executive, you have the resources, more than likely, you're accountable to make some of the systemic changes. And then you can go back to the sales team and say, hey, I heard what you said out there. And I was new. We, we're going to fix these three things. And by the way, I already fixed one of them. Right. So it, they're thinking that, hey, someone at the top is spending their time. They're coming out with me, meeting me, meeting my clients, and they're actually listening to me and actually addressing some of the systemic issues I see. Hmm. That would be the recommendation that I would make because the learnings out there, because everything else is you have layers of communication, it's getting filtered and so hmm. forth. When you're in a meeting with the sales rep, with their client or a prospect, there is so much learning. It's just hmm. So that, that would be my recommendation when it comes to the uh, acquiring company and what the executives uh, even see so, should do. It's all about the customer in the end. Yeah, it is. It really is. Darn, I thought it was about me, but okay. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this has been super fun. Thank you so much. I could talk to you forever on this one. Maybe you'll... Um, Grant us, you know, your your presence on a on another podcast with us. But um, Keith Conley, tell people how they can get a hold of you if they would if they would like to do so. I know you're on LinkedIn. Yeah, LinkedIn would be great. Or my email is kconley777 at gmail.com. Okay, 777. That sounds like his garage door code. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. Okay, well, thank you so much for spending time with us here today. It was really great. I really appreciate it. Um, you're someone I highly respect. So thank you. And a thank you to all of our subscribers here. If you have enjoyed today's session, please share with your family, friends, colleagues, everyone you know. Connect with Mark and I on LinkedIn. We're always looking for followers. We're always competing to see who has the most. So anyway, <laughs> just uh, who's kidding. competing? I know, right? <laughs> anyway, thank you again, Keith. Thanks, Keith. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank and we'll you see you all the next time. Tell me